Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed, episode 314, is recorded live January 12th, 2017. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Gilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well, thank you, and glad to be here. And we also have Kevin Ailes. How are you doing today, Kevin? I'm doing excellent. Yourself, Darren? Doing great. And we also have a special guest. We have Taurus Lysenko. How are you doing today, Taurus? I am well. And Kevin, why don't we have you do a, a formal introduction, a little bit of a background. Yeah, well, uh, tonight's guest is uh, uh, Taras Lysenko. Uh, he is the general manager of uh, A&T Recovery. We'll get into a little bit more about what A&T Recovery does as, as the podcast unfolds. Uh, Taras is also a, a very prolific writer. He writes uh, some children's books, also a fair amount of legislation. Uh, he is uh, a pilot. And he's done his share of aviation archaeology symposiums, and that's how how, how we ran into him here. Um, Terrace, uh, you know, can you tell us a little bit about what uh, ANT Recovery does? ANT Recovery is a it's not like a normal company. It's a sort of a small little consortium of of people who come together as a company and operate as a company to locate, recover, and bring back to American Society once lost World War II aircraft, naval aircraft, for so that the uh, work of the greatest generation to protect America's and the world's freedom and liberty never forgotten. And that's what we do. That's our, our mission. That's a, that's a hell of a mission there. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about exactly how you uh, put that into practice? Well, we, uh, we've been doing it for 30 years, and the the main place we do it is in Lake Michigan because Lake Michigan during World War II had two makeshift aircraft carriers that had formerly been side-wheel steamer excursion vessels. They were actually very fancy, very fancy ships where you could take cruises on the Great Lakes. Believe it or not, you know how people go on Caribbean cruises and Mediterranean cruises? Well, uh, before World War II, there were those kind of cruises in the Great Lakes. You would actually go for a week and, you know, have have a wonderful trip with uh, uh, on board a very fancy ship and very fancy food. And when the war broke out, the uh, the Navy needed a lot of pilots, especially in the Pacific Theater. It was a, it was really hard for them to train pilots off the coast because you had on the, the east coast you had the German wolf pack U-boats and on the west coast you had Japanese submarines and so a person a pilot trying to learn on learn to land on board an aircraft carrier when the aircraft carrier is trying to dodge torpedoes from submarines is not all that easy so there was uh, was uh, Captain Manley and. Uh, Admiral Whitehead, who came up with the idea to to buy these excursion vessels and make them flat tops and train the, uh, the aircraft carrier pilots on out on Lake Michigan 
off of Chicago. So in the process, they, well, they did this in between 1942 and 1945. They trained somewhere close to 15,000 pilots. But in the process, they put about 130 aircraft which went into the water and were lost in the lake. Some were recovered during the war, but uh, 120 or so remained. So we at A&T Recovery decided we're going to locate those because there was a there was a demand for them in aviation museums, military aviation museums across the country. So we uh, we spent a good number of years side scanning the bottom of the lake and locating the aircraft and started recovering them for different museums across the country. And one day we got a phone call from the the Navy, a new director at the National Naval Aviation Museum, and he said, you're going to work for us now, which we didn't really like that idea, but we sort of had no choice because the the, uh, the aircraft are owned by the Navy. So we we chose to go along with his program because our other option was he would put us in prison. So, uh, <laughs> so we... We went along with him, and and it, so up until now, we've recovered eh, probably near somewhere around approximately forty aircraft, who and they are on display throughout the country. Wow, that is impressive. Um, huh. Yeah, I, I think we've a lot of us have heard, and our listeners, I'm, too, I'm sure as well, have heard bits and pieces about what you're doing. Um, you know, it's been in the news quite a bit. Uh, Discovery Channel talked about you. I mean, um, you know, this is, a, you know, kind of the pinnacle of coolness for pulling vessels out of the lake. Um, and this is the guy, listeners. This is the, this is the group that's doing this here. So um, I'm very impressed. Um, I couldn't ask for a cooler job. <laughs> way to go, man. And you're doing it well, in support of our veterans and everything. This is way to go. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, well, everybody gets to see the cool part. Well, well, thank you, but everybody gets to see the cool part, but they don't get to see the backdrop <laughs> of what we deal with. But the uh, so the they they don't realize the uh, labyrinth of government agencies and um, bureaucracy that we have to deal with to do it. Um, what's what's so, the lead time look like? So you're out there and you're side scanning, you've identified one, and you look to side scan what it. From the time that you identified it to the time that you raise it, how long does that elapse? <laughs> well, we started scanning the Southern Basin 1986. We completed our scan 1996, and we have a whole number of aircraft we still haven't recovered. So, so the the length of time could be it's uh, you know, could be from 1990 all the way to present day. But um, it's very interesting what's occurred because of the bureaucracy. The, the program is is directed by the National Naval Aviation Museum. They are under the command of the Naval History and Heritage Command, and that's really where the bureaucracy really lies. And I'll tell you a very interesting thing. I, out of the 40 aircraft, as of the last time I checked on the website of the Naval History and Heritage Command, which was about a month ago, we have been asking all these years for them to put on their website um, about the recovery program of the museum under their command. And as of a month ago, they still have no mention of any recovery of any aircraft we've ever done. They have a few kind of nasty words about us, but they they don't mention of all the aircraft we've got recovered and on display. 
the new director of the Naval History and Heritage Command, who's uh, Admiral Samuel Cox, he is attempting to get his bureaucrats to do that because he wishes to promote that we did that. But you have a branch of that agency called the Underwater Archaeological Branch who has for 30 years fought us with a statement saying that these aircraft are in their natural state and should be left on the bottom of Lake Michigan. So every turn in the road, they've done everything they can to oppose us recovering the aircraft and putting them on display in museums. So it sounds like they may have opposed you, but it looks like you've still been able to pull quite a few. Oh, of course, because rational man takes a look at it and says, that's nuts. What it really is all about is the archaeological community knows that there really aren't discoveries left in the world, right? We're not going to find any more Mayan civilizations. We, we've found most things. If you look at archaeological digs and things like that, they're going to the same places over and over and over and over and finding another finger or finding another piece of pot, of pottery. They're not, there's, there aren't any big discoveries. Archaeologists are kind of about the same as blacksmiths. It's it's a profession that should be gone, um, and so they're but they they can't realize that. Like blacksmiths realize that it was time to move on to other things. Archaeologists can't figure out that they need to move on. There's there just aren't discoveries left. Yeah, you'll find a ship here and there, and you'll find a few things like that. But there's really no need for full time professional archaeologists. And, but they can't they can't get that through their head. So you find archaeologists and things like Naval History and Heritage Command. You might find one or two working for the states. You find things like that. Um, so that's why they crept into you know, contemporary society. We, we sort of have a joke that they want to call everything that is as old as yesterday archaeological. Right? And so they, that's what they... So when we in A&T Recovery started finding all these aircraft and and we started getting attention because they're going to all these museums. Lo and behold, they came out of the woodwork and said, we have to be doing that. And it really gets under their skin that they went, spent all those years in college getting their PhDs in, you know, which really stands for, you know, B, BS is BS, MS is more of, more of the bovine excrement, and PhD is pilot high and deep. So they... <laughs> They spend all this time getting their PhDs in archaeology, and nobody cares. Nobody cares. And they tried to come up with all in – in the early 90s, they tried to come up with all these justifications why they should be, they should be running our project. They, they came up with things saying, oh, we need to study – we need to study the logistics of the aircraft carriers by studying the aircraft crashed on the bottom of Lake Michigan. Does that make any sense? No. They, it doesn't make any sense, but they would all sit there in their conferences and all shake their heads like a bunch of bobbleheads. I was going to say they're probably saying ahead. this at the time when we still had a large number of veterans alive. You could exactly. You hit the nail on the head. And in all those years, not one of those archaeologists ever sat down, sat any of the pilots, any of the people that were on board the aircraft carriers or any of this stuff for an interview. They never, ever actually went to the real people who played the roles. They never did that. Nothing, you know, you know why? It's a huge waste of resources. I mean, well, well, you know why they never did that? Because archaeology is the study of ancient cultures. You can't study an ancient culture if you have somebody to talk to. 
Yeah. <laughs> from the culture. It's not it, it, it just doesn't work. So so they yeah. didn't do that. They never did any of that. They just tried to come up with all these justifications and all these excuses. So so they fought and fought and they, they there was an archaeologist working for Naval History and Heritage Command that actually made this ridiculous statement to a publication once, to a media outlet once, where he said, wouldn't it be wonderful in 100 and 150 years when this generation is all dead if some archaeologists could find some of these aircraft and study them? See, he was, he was, his brain was, we've got to make it ancient where the, there's nobody to talk to about it and we've got to study it to try to figure out what happened. And that doesn't work for, for, for people. But if you have somebody to tell you what happened, you ask them, right? And, well, and, plus, and that's what we did. These, well, to understand that these wrecks are, um, you know, you've seen it in your time, how they are not nearly as pristine as when you first pulled them out. And can you imagine what, what they're going to look like in 100 years from now? I mean, they're going to be just... They, they won't be there. They, yeah. they won't be there. Yeah, the, it, it's real simple. <laughs> it's, it, it's interesting how how... People can look at things like zebra mussels and guaga mussels and see their damage. And then an archaeologist could say, oh, well, that's just the natural state of what's occurring. They'll actually say things like that. And you say, really, really invasive species are, well, I, like I always say, is I say, wait, aircraft are aircraft, they fly. They don't belong at the bottom of lakes. And then guaga mussels and zebra mussels are from Europe. They don't belong at the bottom of Lake Michigan. So you put all these things together. None of that's natural, and yet you as these archaeologists want to say it's its natural state, and they say, well, and then the corrosion and the you know deterioration of the aircraft is somehow acceptable to these two unnatural situations, right? So I guess logically progressing from there, if, if we all decided to uh, go down and diving on them and beat on them with sledgehammers, wouldn't that be a natural progression as well, if that's the way they see the quagga and the zebra mussels? But, but yeah. You know, the humans, the only thing that's not natural to them is humans, right? So, uh, anyway, we're unnatural to them. So, uh, All right. Anyway, so they don't make any sense. They're, there's no logic in the archaeological community. It's just, it's, well, they, they were, in the old days, they were called pot hunters, and it's a good description of them. So, <laughs> now, A&T Recovery's archaeologist is the only realist that I've ever, we've ever run into. He, he mm-hmm. says you can't. You don't leave things to be destroyed. What's the point of that? It doesn't make any sense. He said you can't study nothing, so mm-hmm. you don't let things become nothing. So I've got anyway. some comments here out of the chat room. Uh, okay, Eric's telling us. Uh, Eric's been Eric's been looking through your website antrecovery.com. Actually, that's atrecovery.com, and. Uh, Eric's telling us very impressive recoveries. He's, he's really enjoying your website, it looks like here. Um, got a couple other people that have a question? Come and gone there. Did, did he have not, a question? Not a question. No. Oh, Eric, well, I'll make Eric, a comment Eric, about the website. I'll make a comment about the website. Uh, it needs to be updated. <laughs> we, put it, we put it up in about 2004, and we've never updated it. I don't even know how to update it. I lost all the passwords and everything else. So so it really needs to be updated. So I one day I think we'll get to it and and huh. we'll have a lot of stuff on the UC97 to update and a lot of other recoveries to update but but yeah, sorry about that to everybody. Let me know. I apologize. It's just it's uh you know, I, I we're not really good with the website. 
Well, say it, it looks like Eric's enjoying it just the way it is, but I don't, I don't Eric does a little bit of website work, so you you might be getting a hold of you there. So careful there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I know. Now, what, what do you have going on? I could not be more impressed with this kind of a project here about pulling up World War II planes. Um, you know, I understand. So, you know, they're some in pretty good condition, some are not. But uh, I, I got a question here. Okay, like so here, here I am, a recreational diver. Um, kind of think think that I know how to dive and I'm good. And uh, I want to, like, no, how how could I help you out? Can I, can I just show up on your job site and give you a hand? What's what 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 is my place in your business as a recreational uh, diver? No place. No place. No place. No place. Yes. No place. And 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 here and here's the reason. All right. We are doing work on United States Department of the Navy's property. Right. From the point of view of the U.S. government, it's no different than if somebody was building a new runway on a naval base. There would be people out there that would think, wow, that's really cool. They're building a new runway. And you might watch what they're doing because the, the Navy's runway, my guess, is going to be a little different than the Air Force runway. I, I know that, right? They they put they actually put like arresting gear on I've seen on Navy base runways. Okay. Um, so that they can practice arresting and, you know, stopping an aircraft with a tail hook if they want. So you might think that's really cool. Well, if you went out there and said to the contractors building it, Hey, I think this is really neat. I want to help you. The contractor is going to look at you and say, I don't have insurance for you. I don't have proof of your expertise. I don't have a whole lot of things. Thank you for the offer, but no thank you. And we're no different. I have to have unbelievable amounts of liability insurance. I carry something like 5 to $10 million of just environmental liability insurance as it is. Okay? I, have to, I have to get government permits, extensive government permits, from the Army Corps of Engineers, from the states, the states which the, uh, the state historic preservation agencies or offices, from Fish and Wildlife, from I, I even for a while I had a big problem with the people who regulate wastewater treatment plants. Could you believe I had to get permits to build wastewater treatment plants to recover the aircraft? So a sport diver who approaches me and says, I'm a sport diver. I can, I'm a technical diver. I can dive to, to 300 feet. It, that doesn't, doesn't mean anything to us because I don't have insurance for that. I can't use that. I'm not allowed to use that person. I'm not allowed to do those kind of things. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense when you put it that way. You know, I just, you know, I don't know. I'm just like, I think I'm skilled and I think I could help you out, but it just sounds like there's really no place for me in your work environment. So I guess I guess I, I won't be showing up at your job site. So I'm not sure. Yeah. Right. The, the, I'm sorry. I'm going to jump in there for a second. I'm curious. I know you do the aircraft, but I know that you've also discovered a good number of shipwrecks. And I'd like to mm -hmm. have your opinion on the Sunken Vessel Protection Act in correlation to I know the Navy requirements for, for aircraft. What about the state requirements on the vessels, you, the wooden vessels, for example? What kind okay, of okay? So, so are, are you are you are you talking about the sunken military craft act? No, 
um, like each of the states. Or the uh, Abandoned Shipwreck Act? The Abandoned Shipwreck Act? Yes. Okay. Okay. All right. So the Abandoned Shipwreck Act. All right. So A&T Recovery, um, a lot of times people are really confused by A&T Recovery. They think we're like puppets of the government, and we're the exact opposite. Um, A&T Recovery always believed in the laws of salvage and the laws of fines. Fines. And people who don't, who are not very sophisticated in maritime law, think they always thought that they, if they went out and they found something, that it's theirs, right? You've, I'm sure you've heard this, right? Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. So I use a very simple analogy. If you are walking through the parking lot of the supermarket and there on the ground is a wallet and you open that wallet and there's $10,000 of cash in that wallet, Whose wallet is that and whose money is that? Can you guys answer that? Well, one, if you have a known identification, that would be one aspect that it doesn't belong to you. It was a lost item. Mm-hmm. I know that okay. if I recover That's the car the that was in the water, I can buy the contract from the insurance company for a nominal fee. Now that's my car, my responsibility. Yeah. Okay. But you answered the question. The wallet is the person, the wallet and the money is the person who lost it. The car generally had been insured by an insurance company. So the person who owned it and lost it was paid off by the insurance company. Therefore, it's owned by the insurance company. You can then approach the insurance company to get it. The laws of salvage and the laws of fines said the same thing. A sunken vessel that was lost, say in a storm or anything like that, is owned by the person who lost it. If they were paid off by an insurance company, then it's owned by that insurance company. Okay? What the Abandoned Shipwreck Act did was say there's a lot of vessels that we can't determine that on, right? Because there's, you know, they were lost in 1872 or something, and those records don't exist. So for things we can't determine that, the Abandoned Shipwreck Act said, therefore, when we can't determine that, or there was a specific act of abandonment, then that vessel is owned by the state, all right? The 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 case with Harry Zike and the Lady Elgin proved that the, the records were still there, so the Lady Elgin was owned by, I forget what the, the insurance company was, all right? And that was adhered to. That's who owned the Lady Elgin. Therefore, Harry Zike was able to make a deal with the insurance company, all right? So A&T Recovery is a very staunch believer of that, that we believe whoever lost it owns it, and we believe when we find it, we approach the owner. That's why the naval aircraft, we agree with the Navy on the naval aircraft, because the people of the United States of America bought, built, and used those aircraft. They were not deliberately thrown away by the Navy. They were lost in training. Therefore, the people of the United States of America still own the aircraft. My joke always is, can I sell you my share? But anyway, I can't. But <laughs> if I could, I would, sell, I would Yeah, if I could sell you my share, I would sell you my share of all the national parks, the national, the Washington Monument, the Capitol Building. <laughs> I would try to sell it, but I can't. Okay. <laughs> anyway, but, but the aircraft still belong to the people of the United States of America. We have never agreed with the thing where you can go find it and take it and do what you want with it because it was paid for by the people of the United States of America. Right? Shipwrecks, we, feel, we believe that if we can determine the owner, well, okay, we'll, 
will then the owner should be able to say. And we have a crew member who actually owns a ship. I believe it's in Wisconsin waters. He owns that ship on the bottom of Lake Michigan, one of our crew members. He got it from the insurance company, and it's from the 1800s, I believe. And I don't know all the details, but one of our crew members, and he ended up in court, and the courts determined it's his ship because the insurance company said, yeah, we're giving it to him. So, and, and, I'm, and I'm simplifying it, that, you know, there's a lot to it, but he actually owns a ship on the bottom of Lake Michigan, right? So, and we're staunch believers in that. That's why we're staunch opponents of things like national marine sanctuaries. We oppose those to the nth degree. Okay. And you want to know what, why that is? I do, because, because I agree with you. <laughs> yeah. What national marine sanctuaries do is they draw a map around an area, and they say, you know, the oppressor always comes in the name of protection. So the oppressor say, comes in, the National Marine Sanctuary, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, draws a line around things and says, everything in there is now ours. We're protecting it, supposedly, right? If there's ships in there that were owned by XYZ Company, and on that ship there's something really interesting, the National Marine Sanctuary just stopped marine exploration. They've proven this in the Florida Keys. They've proven this in the Monterey Bay Sanctuary, where in the Monterey Bay Sanctuary, where there were beautiful sparrowhawk fighters at 1,700, 1,800 feet deep that we were going to go pick up. The Navy wanted to pick up and put one on display in the National Naval Aviation Museum. The Monterey Bay Sanctuary said, no, they're ours now. And you know what they do now? They go out every so many years to see how bad the deterioration of the sparrowhawk fighters were. When they put the – when they – when they were first found, the things were beautiful, the paint, the fabric, everything, because they were 17, 1,800 feet deep. Well, once, once the salt water gets through the primer, then, it, then the, the corrosion is accelerated. So now they're just piles of sand. So the Monterey Bay Sanctuary stopped that exploration, stopped those recoveries, and destroyed those aircraft. Now, their rhetoric will be exactly counter to that, but they're nothing but liars. Right. So when they start putting sanctuaries in Michigan and in Wisconsin, they're they're doing harm not only to people like myself, but they're actually doing harm to sport divers because sport divers are very good discovery people, right? Can I and they get a, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh no, I don't, I don't want to interrupt. But when I've got a question from our chat room, when you get a moment, it's a little bit off topic. But when you when you get a moment, so yeah. Okay. Anyway, but they. They, you know, they're, sport divers are very good discovery people, right? Because they, they like to find this kind of stuff for us. A lot of times it's for the bragging rights, but, you know, they, they, they like a little sometimes incentives. There's actually shipwrecks that we know have copper on them and things like that. They're actually, everybody likes the idea that they can have a chance of finding the treasure chest and that there's a way that they could maybe get to keep the treasure chest. Well, if you find a ship that has all kinds of copper on it and you can find it was insured by XYZ Insurance Company and XYZ Insurance Company owns it, I'm all for, and I help, I try, we try to help at A&T Recovery, we try to help sport divers that say, hey, I'm after that thing. I'm after such a thing. We say, good, we want you to find that. Because if that thing's down at 300 feet deep and you get to keep the copper on it or you get to keep whatever's on it because the insurance company agrees to let you do that, we want you to have that incentive to do that. Well, a sanctuary just took that away from you. <laughs> so, so we don't believe in these things at all. We think it's nothing but government run amok, bureaucrats who never do anything. If you look in the Florida Keys, the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary, all exploration totally stopped. There hasn't been 
there hasn't been news of any ship found or anything, basically since the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary came into effect in about 1990. Totally stopped ocean exploration. Totally stifled it. For what purpose? I've got a question here from Eric in the chat room. You'd like to know okay. where the uh, bulk, the, where the bulk of your funds come from? Bulk of our funds come from? Yep. Yep. That, that, that's yeah. That's an interesting question. Um, Wikipedia did a pretty good job. Um, we actually have to raise money from donors that wish to see the projects occur. Right. So. Anti-recovery actually goes out and approaches very, very wealthy people that have various interests in history. Some of them have, have had families that were part of the Navy. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, Enterprise Rent-A-Car funded the project to recover the F, F6, F-3 Hellcat fighter that we recovered from Michigan Waters. And the reason for that is, is Enterprise Rent-A-Car and Enterprise Holdings, which is the parent company, was founded by a guy named Jack Taylor. He, he, he named his companies Enterprise because he was a Hellcat pilot on board the USS Enterprise. So his son, in honor of his father, spent an awful lot of money. And, and where the, the big bulk of the money comes in is the restoration of the aircraft. Um, spent an awful lot of money making sure we located, we recovered, and then they spent years restoring it. Cost a lot of money of that of that Hellcat fighter. Another person who's a avid aviation buff um, and World War II aviation buff, he actually loves naval aviation. It's a guy named Chuck Greenhill. He has a combat veteran Grumman Duck from World War II that was actually at Pearl Harbor when it was attacked. He his uh, World War II Goose Grumman Goose aircraft. He is a World War II aviation fanatic person. He has funded he funded the F4U-1 Birdcage Corsair recovery and restoration. He's funded the Wildcat fighter that's at the Kalamazoo <laughs> Zoo. So we we actually raise our money. Our our other backers have been Boeing, McDonald's. You know, the McDonald's hamburgers, believe it or not, McDonald's hamburgers, they are a big supporter. They have been over the years a really big backer of the projects. That's where, So that's where our funding comes from, those kind of organizations. And there's a lot of others, uh, McCormick Tribune. Um, so just a lot of that sort of thing. Okay. So Eric, the question is, why, why, why would McDonald's hamburgers? So why would McDonald's want a piece of this? Okay. It's... This is this is part of the American the American experience. Um, Ray Kroc started McDonald's hamburgers in whatever years. You know, it's a, actually I think they actually made a movie about this now. How he started McDonald's hamburgers. It was actually kind of a mixer machine or something. I can't remember exactly. Um, I don't know the story, but but uh, Ray Kroc, his fry cook was a guy named Fred Turner, and they started getting pretty big. Right? Started franchising this stuff, going all over the place. Right, and this is after World War II. They started really expanding all over the place, and they joined this group. And in this group was a whole bunch of guys, and a bunch of the guys in the group were were former World War II Navy pilots. And so here we go. Years progression. These Navy pilots become admirals. Ray Kroc and Fred Turner take McDonald's to one of the largest international corporations all over the world, and 
And every year these guys would get together and they would do stuff and they would all tell stories. So to Ray Kroc and Fred Turner, those Navy pilots were the people who protected the world's liberty and freedom, which allowed them to take their, this company, McDonald's, to what it is that what we see today. To the pilots, Ray Kroc and Fred Turner were some of the coolest people on earth, some of the smartest business people, and they were awesome people to them. So in honor of those Navy pilots, Fred Turner, who is now deceased, and McDonald's backs our projects so that what those pilots did would never be forgotten. So in a way, they're, they're paying it forward. Yeah, well, they're making, yeah, they're, they're, they're trying to make sure that America never forgets. Yeah. yeah. So they're yeah. big supporters of ours. Yeah. Very avid supporters of ours. So, Another question from the chat. Uh, do okay. you and your crew have other jobs? Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> we have to survive. We actually had a joke. <laughs> I used to tell this to Fred. Fred Turner and I at McDonald's had a very interesting relationship. I could tell him anything that was on my mind. <laughs> I, okay. I used to tell him. He used to say, he used to say, wow, this stuff costs quite a bit. You know, it's mostly the restoration. And and I used to say, well, as, for, as far as our part, Fred, if we would have taken all the time that we have worked on this and just worked at one of your franchises, we'd be very wealthy. <laughs> okay. And he'd say, I can all understand right. that. He'd, he'd, say, he'd say, you guys, you guys spend massive amounts of time with your research and <laughs> fighting with government bureaucrats and everything else. And, and yeah, when he had a, one, of, one of my crew members once said to me, once said to me, he said, I did, I did, I did my, uh, my hourly pay, pay rate for the season. And I said, really, what is it? And he says, it's below federal minimum wage. <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> and he said, no. He said, where else could you have this much fun? <laughs> so, Got to be a labor of love. Got to be a labor of love. <laughs> Yeah. So, and, and when you when you you think about it, people think there's all this money, but our robots, you know, remote operated vehicles are fiber optic made by Mitsui Shipbuilding. These things are unbelievable amounts of money. You know, people buy buy side scan sonars. <laughs> A&T Recovery doesn't buy the side scan sonar everybody else does. A&T <laughs> Recovery has has the side scan sonar that the U.S. Navy wishes it had. Okay, so it's it's not. I remember I had we had we had we always had the we always had the the you know, we were the Bravo test site for the, one of the premier's uh, sonar producers, and it was funny. We had I'll never forget this. We had these college students that were looking at our stuff on our boat, and we we had this. I can't remember. It was Unix base. It was a, a Sparks. Parks workstation, whatever. And the kid says, my university runs on what you have on your boat. You know, uh, my university's IT and education, everything, what you have in your boat, that's what they use for our, my university. It was like University of Chicago or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and he, you know, he said, that must have cost you. And my partner said, it costs us everything. <laughs> so, anyway, but that's the kind of, that's the kind of stuff that you know that's and that's why our crew members just love it because they they that's what they work with that sort of stuff you know mm -hmm. so yeah it's not a it's not a it's not a game 
You know, it's uh, we, we, our joke is we like the talking head songs. This ain't no party. This ain't no disco. This ain't no fooling around. You know, so we're there to we're there to bring that history back to the United States of America. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm talking about it. history. What do you plan to do with the UC 97? Well, <laughs> I love this one. So, well, we located that whatever 1892, and um, can I, so we can brought I it to the. Can I give our listeners a little bit of background on the on the UC 97 here? Um, I, I think a lot okay. of people might not know exactly what what this submarine is. Actually, you can probably give the background better than I can. But um, could you kind of explain a little bit about exactly what it is? Yeah, sure. Okay, um, let me take a quick drink of water. Okay. UC-97 is one of the six U-boats that were turned over to the United States of America um, of the approximately 172 that were surrendered surrendered by the Kaiser's Navy at the end of World War I, the Great War. And what they did, the Kaiser's Navy had to surrender all their ships, and they surrendered all these U-boats. And they brought most of them to Harwich, England, and then the Allies divided up who would get you know, what U-boats, and the UC-97 was one of the six, so they brought that along with the UB-88, and I think the U-117, and, you know, several other boats. They brought brought them to New York, and then they sent the U-boats touring different parts of the states on bond drives. The UC-97 was brought to the St. Lawrence Seaway into the Great Lakes and toured. We have the whole logs, and we know everywhere it toured, and they did this in 1919, and it ended up in Chicago, where they removed an engine, the periscope, and they were they, they were allowed to study it. And then, according to the armistice, they had to destroy it by 1921, some, sometime in 1921. And they, they tried to scrap it. They tried all kinds of things, and they kind of gave up. And so what they did was they, uh, they took the vessel out into Lake Michigan, and they shelled it with the uh, USS Wilmette, which had formerly been the Eastland. And that's a whole other little story there. Now, I will tell you one thing. There's a guy who wrote a book about the Eastland, and I tell people do not buy that book because his section on the UC-97 uh, says it was his, – his facts are just totally way off base. Um, he So he, he did no research. Uh, I don't – his research was horrible. So but anyway, so they they sank it in 1921 by the, the – uh, former Eastland of Wilmette sinking it, shelling it, um, northeast of Chicago. So we located it in, I think, 1992. And uh, she's she's standing upright, tilted, I think, to starboard a little bit. And she definitely went nose down first, so the back end is up. So she's on about a 10-degree nose down attitude, tilted slightly to the starboard. So we locate her. She's beautiful. Um, and we notified the state of Illinois because the abandoned shipwreck act had passed in 1987, 1988. So we said, according to the abandoned shipwreck act, a specific act of abandonment then turns the vessel over to the state. Right. So, so our belief was that, uh, it's owned by the state of Illinois because of the abandoned shipwreck act. Right. So, um, we went to the court of claims, uh, we filed a lawsuit against the state of Illinois in the court of claims, and it was a friendly lawsuit. And the reason it's a friendly lawsuit is because we wanted to see who would all step up making a claim. We 
fully expected the U.S. Navy to step up and try to make a claim, but they didn't. So the court said, uh, we agree with A&T Recovery and the state of Illinois that the state of Illinois owns the vessel. But the state of Illinois and A&T Recovery are working on some sort of agreement on the potential of recovering her and putting her back on public display. And we want that to happen. Right. So, so we worked out, we have this huge agreement of all the requirements the state would like for us to do that. And so, um, when we look at that, we look at the amount of money. <laughs> so it's, it's a really large amount of money and to do it. So go ahead. What was your question? How, how, how big is this boat? You're going to bring up. 182 feet long. Okay. And um, it's in, it's in good enough condition to bring up and all. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah. Well, it was beautiful. I don't know what the guaga muscles are doing to it because we don't go. We once well, A and T recovery videotape something, we don't return until we're gonna, we're ready to recover it. So, um, so yeah, it was beautiful. It was, you could read the numbers on the side and everything. All the paint was on it. It was beautiful. The shell the shell holes were. It was obvious they didn't use AT rounds. What I what I believe they used was just a a slug, right? They just they just shot a probably a solid lead projectile at it, and we looked at the shell holes. They were just punched holes, right? So didn't hurt it at all. It's just, but you you shoot that with a four inch slug like that, and you put you put a few four inch holes in it. It doesn't take long for a submarine to go down. So <laughs> it went down pretty quick once they once they you know hit the water line, right? So four inch hole that's a lot of water in really quick, right? So and they had all the hatches are open, right? We have nice video all you can see all the hatches are open and uh so as soon as it got a you know, as soon as it got started it went down really quick um so anyway so we uh let's fast forward quite a few years so the new director of naval history and heritage command came in he came into office i don't know maybe two years ago and one of the first things he told his staff is he said as my during my tenure as Director of Naval History and Heritage Command, and I, I'm not speaking for him, but so I'm paraphrasing what I inferred from what he said in front of his staff, in front of me and his staff, he he said, I agree with terrorists. We should recover the UC-97. And he said, basically, terrorists doesn't care who owns it, right? Terrorists never cares who owns whatever the thing is. Terrorists wants to bring history back. So he said... I think we own it because we were forced to sink it, but I think we really own it. So um, I want terrorists to be successful and to recover it and fix it and put it on display because it's really, really interesting history. And where else would you get, where else could you ever see a German World War I U-boat, right? So he told his staff this. So interesting thing, of course, his bureaucratic staff said, took him a little bit, but I'd say about six months ago, they came up with this really interesting thing. They said, we have a dispute. They told me, one of their attorneys told me this. We have a dispute. We have a dispute about the ownership. And I said, what, you're disputing that Illinois owns it? That's what I'm thinking, logically, because the court of claims said Illinois owns it. And I said, we've got the paperwork from Illinois saying, hey, if you want to do whatever you want to do, let's do it. And he said, no, that's not our dispute. He said, we say the British, we think the British own it, the Royal Navy. And I said, that's one of the dumbest things I've ever heard. And so I went 
And A&T Recovery, we're, we're well known for our research capabilities. We're, we have, people don't realize it, but we have, we have an archaeologist that's the best underwater archaeologist in the world, and that's not bragging or, or exaggerating. He is, okay? Um, he's the most experienced. He, he makes the archaeologists at Naval Historic History and Heritage Command look like kindergarten students. Um, we have an unbelievable genealogist, and we have researchers all over the place. So we have we have this extensive correspondence from the British Admiralty to and from the British Admiralty in the U.S. Navy about the UC-97. And we have all this information that says the Allies agreed to turn the UC-97 over to the United States. They agreed to turn these other U-boats over to Brit- Britain and these ones over to Japan and to France. And the National Archives said, says the UC-97 was commissioned in the United States Navy. It's a U.S. Navy ship, U.S. Navy vessel. Still, the archaeological branch of Naval History and Heritage Command, and we truly believe this is to do everything they can to thwart A&T recovery from doing a project that they wish they could do, (laughs) Um, wants to say it's owned by the British Navy. So just in the past two weeks, um, we... I sent a letter to the first Sea Lord of the British Royal Navy to the Director of Naval History and Heritage Command that kind of talks about this being kind of silly, but says, hey, if the U.S. Navy wants to say you own it, fine with me, but let's do a project. Let's do something with this. So um, maybe in two weeks from now, there'll be an update because I may have a letter back, but (laughs) I think it probably just got on his desk yesterday with the length of time it takes, you know? So, so we shall see. And we're trying to talk to some of the wealthiest people in the world to see if they would be willing to back it. So anyway, that's where we are with that. So this is not a pipe dream. This could, this could really happen. Of course could happen. Yes. Well, I mean, it's just, you know, bringing up boats like this, that I don't know. It's, it, I don't know. I mean, I, of course, I know nothing about what you guys do and what your capabilities are, but I mean, it sounds to me like something I could out of a Clive Custler book. I mean, to bring up a boat, you know, a 182 foot long submarine from World War One, which you know most people didn't even know existed, from 300 feet. That's just, you know, it sounds like the plot out of a story, but you're putting this into perspective that it, it really can be done, and there's potential backing, and you know, maybe 10 years from now we're actually going to see this in a museum someplace. I mean. Um, this is this is well, cool stuff. Well, here let me let me give you a little bit more background. Remember, I said we do extensive research. Germans in war always have been very innovative, and you can look this up. The Germans had a ship called the Vulcan. Okay, you look it up on the internet. The Vulcan. You know what it did? It recovered U-boats. The U-boat has a, a built-in recovery system. The Vulcan was like a very large pontoon boat. And what it did is lowered it lowered things, and there's attachment points on the U-boat that it could lower basically cables on the, the attachment points, and it would pull the U-boat right up between its its two pontoons. Now, if they could do that a, a hundred years ago, don't you think we could put together a couple derrick barges that could do it? Yeah. Take the Glomar out of uh, Hawk and bring that over. What's that? The Glomar. The, uh, that's the one that recovered the Soviet oh, the, submarine. The, the, yeah, the, the Glomar Explorer. Yeah. yeah, and we don't need something that 
that massive. There are heavy lift derrick barges that the owners have told me this thing would be like picking up a uh, beach ball to them. This would be nothing to them. They've looked at the displacement. They looked at the tonnage and everything. They're like, that would be nothing. Just hook us on it and we'll pick it up. No big deal. Easy. <laughs> and cool. so, so we've looked at it and, and we know it's not a problem. Okay. Yeah, it, it well, might you know, take several weeks, but you know, but in reality, it's really not a problem. It's no big deal. And people say, "Well, what if it broke in half?" Well, then we'd pick up two halves. Well, who cares? <laughs> it wouldn't matter. <laughs> you know, it, 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 right, that okay. wouldn't matter at all. You know, so okay. Well, well, just you know, just hypothetically, theoretically, here now. I mean, again, no, I'm a I'm a sport diver, and uh, yeah, you know, I'm real impressed with what you're doing as far as with the planes and the submarine, and I'm thinking. Okay, I mean, maybe I get some tech training and go see the submarine myself or go look at the planes myself. Is there any kind of legal reasoning why I can't go out and just and just do that? Well, all these things are covered by what is now called the Sunken Military Craft Act, right? Okay. And the Sunken Military Craft Act, it's – I tell people to be careful, really, really careful. Because when you look at things um, and what people do in general, I'll give you an example. There was a there was a TBF torpedo bomber near the 68th Street crib outside of Chicago. If you go look at that aircraft, people have stripped all kinds of things off it, and those a lot of those parts have come back actually via through A and T recovery because the people have found out that they could go to prison for taking a part off that aircraft. And what they do is they call the Navy, and the Navy says, are you anywhere near anybody from A&T Recovery? If you are, turn it over to them. They'll turn it over to us. And then that way, we don't need to know who you are, we'll, and we, we won't go after you. But if you don't do that, you've now informed us, we're going to give you a certain length of time. And, and I've been on these phone calls where people with the Navy lawyers who say to them, okay, we're giving you a, kind of an amnesty right now. Right. So what happens with sport divers um, in our experience is even if you're a sport diver that doesn't want souvenirs, you get on a boat. And if you're on that boat with somebody who does want a souvenir, the sunken military craft deck sort of says you have to report that person. You better report that person. If you don't report that person, guess what? So I recommend to people, yeah, I recommend to people stay the hell away from it. Stay the hell away from all of it. There's enough shipwrecks out there where there's a lot of interesting things to look at where you won't get you in something that kind of trouble. And you won't get in trouble with other people, right? Because if you look at any of the cases, right, there are cases where, you know, there's a, there's a, charter boat where one person took a nail of something and everybody on the charter boat's arrested. And then you have to prove you weren't participating, right? And so even if you end up charges being dropped, who knows how much it costs you getting the lawyers and everything else, right? So, so I say when it comes to military vessels, stay away from them because stay away from the aircraft. That's my recommendation. I'm not I don't give any orders to anybody, but my recommendation is stay away. Stay away from my recommendation is stay away from any time you go with groups of people you don't know really well, and they say, well, we're going to that airplane. <laughs> well, it's okay. <laughs> you go. <laughs> it's what I say. You know, right. if you can't have 
if I, you can't have total control, my recommendation is go, no, no, that's okay. All right. Because every now and then they, they, you know, they're kind of quiet about a lot of it, but every now and then they want to prove a point. Right. So, so, you know, it's kind of my advice. And, and I recommend everybody study. There's the, there's the sunken military craft act. Then there's their guidelines. And I recommend people who want to go near these things, study all that stuff. Right. I, I joke and call it the the A and T Recovery Protection Act, uh, you know, because you know, we, you know, we have such a long history, and all our our divers know exactly what to do and what not to do. Um, you know, <laughs> you know, you will not find when we're when we're going to videotape or whatever, so, you know, certain things in aircraft, you won't find anything ever on our boat that's part of the U.S. that belongs to the U.S. Navy when we're given approval. For the recovery, everything on the boat's U.S. Navy, right? Belongs to U.S. Navy, right? So, so we, uh, um, anyway, so we, you know, we're, but we, we have, you know, 30 years of experience of dealing with this, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, my divers don't go videotape an aircraft and come up with, hey, look what I found in a cockpit. They don't do that. <laughs> you, know, they, you know, they, they don't at all. You know, they don't touch anything, right? Until, until they they're looking at the contract in front of them, you know, and then and yeah. then they then they then they touch stuff. So, now I think Matt kind of touched on this a little bit before, but we kind of got a little off topic here. Um, it, have you found things out there besides aircraft and submarines? Anything that you can tell us about that you found out there? When I mean, you say that you've scanned an awful awful lot of bottomlands. Oh, we, yeah, we've located lots of ships, and and. Many of those ships we've turned over to groups. Now, keep in mind, though, what A&T Recovery attempts to do is bring history back, right? So, so we've given quite a number of ships positions to the Underwater Archaeological Society of Chicago. Um, we're we're kind of disappointed in the group right now because when we the first vessel we turned over to them was the Wells Bird, and they did a really nice job of of mapping it and, and documenting everything and then giving those charts re- back to the rest of the diving community. They did a really nice job of hosting film festivals and education stuff on that ship. Um, we, start, we turned a number of other ships over to them. And what happened over time is, and, and this is my impression, my opinion, right, and why we're a little unhappy with them, is they wanted pristine ships all the time well that's not how the world works right we we'd find a a vessel that might look like a tugboat that looked like it had an explosion to us that's an interesting story so we turn that over to them and they they started getting to the point where they look at it and they'd say and this is my opinion impression they may argue with this but this is my impression they look at oh well it doesn't you know it's not all intact it looks like it got blown up and it's difficult to to figure out what's what and you know it's gonna be hard for us to figure out what ship it is and that and that and we say no you said you're the underwater archaeological society it's you kind of should in the name of organization is what's that I said it's in their name that shouldn't be surprised yeah yeah well well to me if you're an investigator if you're saying you're doing archaeology it isn't the more difficult the more it's a challenge, the more diff- the more that should excite you, right? And 
so what we started noticing was that they wanted like the easy stuff. <laughs> you know, they wanted, here's the name of the ship. Oh, it's intact. Isn't it beautiful? Okay, there you go. Take nice films, do whatever. And we said, no, what, whatever we give you, what you, if you ask us for a vessel and we give you a vessel, no matter what it is, you should look at it with the same amount of enthusiasm, right? So, and we're not giving them the vessel. We're just giving them a position, right, of where the vessel is. It's not ours to give, right? We don't, we don't know. And anyway, so, so over the years, they, they did a nice job on the, they did a nice job on the, I don't know how you say it, Goshawk or Goshawk, which is off of Tawas, Michigan. Um, and they did a nice job on that. They did a nice job on the Wellsburg. They did a nice job on, I think, the Rotarian. They did a nice job on, we found a thing we called the Box Bars, which is really a weird little, weird vessel. Anyway, um, and then and then there's a n- number of other ones that, uh, for some reason, they had trouble with the St. Mary's, which is a vessel that sank the same night as the Lady Elgin, um, which wasn't really talked about because the Lady Elgin lost all those lives and the St. Mary's was a schooner that disappeared, right? So, um, you know, with a crew of seven or nine or something, I, to date, have not seen anything ever put together on the St. Mary's, which bothers me because, you know, it's kind of a really kind of interesting, that's kind of interesting, you know, it disappeared on the exact same night as the Lady Elgin, right? And it and it didn't gain any news because of that. It's, you know, something more horrific gained more news. Uh, but those seven or nine lives were just as important as every life on the Lady Elgin. So, um, so we're kind of disappointed in them. For I don't know, they came to me. They became like just every ordinary sport diving club, which, which, which are great. We like the sport diving club to go look at this stuff too. But they said they were going to do more than that. They were. You know, and uh, anyway, if that makes sense to everybody. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can say that we'd be happy to have those on this side of the lake. I know that on uh, the Chicago side, you know, this stuff's a little more protected and you, you kind of have a lot more to choose from as far as pretty wrecks. But anything you could uh, point out over here, we'd be, <laughs> we'd be always glad to have more stuff to dive over here if that was uh, yeah, any priorities. But, yeah, now, keep in mind, our search area was where the the you know World War II aircraft carriers ventured, right? So we know we 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 basically know how far they ventured into the other states. So that's why we recovered we recovered that Hellcat in Michigan waters. We knew they ventured that far. So um, you know, but they generally didn't venture. You know, they didn't venture over to St. Joe. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so they didn't go that far. Even though there is a very interesting, funny story. There was a Wildcat fighter crashed in 1945 near uh, Richmond, right? Um, which is really kind of a funny story, and uh, and 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 of course it's from my recollection. They actually the Navy went and uh, went and recovered and broke it while they were recovering it. But it was really kind of a funny story. It was a pilot that was supposed to qualify on the carriers, and and the accident report was really interesting because. Instead of going to qualifying the carriers, he like went sightseeing. <laughs> he ran out of fuel near oh, Richmond. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was kind of weird on the accident report and him admitting that he just decided to go flying around the southern basin of the lake and sightseeing and go check the area out. 
<laughs> I, I I don't think he had much of a military career after that. Yeah, I think I'm thinking court martial after that. I mean, that's yeah, yeah. Cool. And he admitted he he was flying around and looking at stuff, and he realized he was out of fuel. So he uh, and the aircraft was tail was sticking out of the water. That's why the Navy went over. <laughs> they were able to go over there. <laughs> so got funny, <laughs> but. Uh, um, anyway, so there are a lot of weird little stories like that with the you know aircraft carrier training stuff, <laughs> and there's a lot of people you never know how they think, right? So, uh, mm-hmm. or if they think, <laughs> Mac, do you think that's? I'm sorry. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, uh, Mac. Do you think that's related to the story of the the plane on? Uh, no, the, you're talking about the uh, Neptune bomber. Yeah. No, uh, that's 1950. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, that's a well. Yeah, that's a different. That yeah, it's a different story. Wow, um, you know these planes you're bringing up, you've been bringing up. I've heard different stories about their condition. I've heard that they're mm-hmm. like you know pristine and they've, they've got air in the tires and working light bulbs. And then I've heard other others that come up in this kind of a almost indiscernible lump of, zebra, of a quagga muscles. What what are you looking at when you bring these planes up? The whole array. And I what I tell people right off the bat is you're starting with a crash, right? And um, so, so it's kind of interesting. Like there was, um, there was three aircraft that crashed in a snowstorm in April of, I don't know if it was 43 or 44. And those three aircraft are probably a perfect example of the wider range of crashes, right? Because, um, one the pilot was able to ditch very close to shore. Right, but that aircraft was so close to shore that the waves and all the weather over the years really destroyed it. Another aircraft, because the visibility was so bad, flew right into the lake. That aircraft was so destroyed because of the water impact of the crash. Right now, so. You take an aircraft that's 350 feet deep that the pilot ditched nicely, but it's 350 feet deep, so it can be in beautiful shape. You can take another aircraft that ditched beautifully in 350 feet deep, and we've seen this, that for some reason um, one fuel tank is full of air and one is full of fuel, so the aircraft apparently started a crazy spiral on the way down. And when it hit, it ripped a wing off, ripped the crack, broke the fuselage. There you have another crash that's pretty bad, even though it was a beautiful ditching. But because of internally the aircraft, it hit the bottom 300 feet below. Pretty weird, right? So you really can't piece together what they'll actually look like until you find them and look at them. And you can look at the accident cards. You can look at what we call the L11-1 data on it. And you still can't guess what the, the actual condition of the aircraft will look like. And we know this. So the Grumman aircraft really, really, the guaga muscles, you know, the, uh, I don't know if you know what guaga muscles do. They, they, you know, the uric acid, right? They're urinating, right? They, they create an acidic bath for the aircraft to be in. The, 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 well, GM's version of the Wildcats seem to be really taking it 
a beating from the guaga muscles, from the uric acid. I don't know why exactly. I don't know. I thought they did a better job with their coatings and stuff, but it doesn't seem to be that. So maybe just a little bit of di- different uh, metal composition. Yeah, yeah, it could be a different, just a different alloy composition, a little bit of different kind of primer. It, who knows? It's and I, you know, I'm not a restorer. I'm not an expert at any of that. I just look at it and see what I see. You can go to the Kalamazoo Air Zoo and take a look at two aircraft. One's a FM2 Eastern Aircraft Division Wildcat fighter that we recovered in 2012 that you could see the terrible damage the guaga muscles have done to it. Right next to it is a SBD Dauntless, SBD-2 photo reconnaissance version Dauntless that we recovered in 2009. Okay, the, the Wildcat was 170 feet deep. The Dauntless was 250, I think. So there's not too much difference in there. That Dauntless has the paint on it, beautiful. My joke was I just need to change the oil and I'll start wow. this aircraft and up and fly it away. It's beautiful. And you can look at those two aircraft next to each other, and I don't know, I guess you could get some expert metallurgist that could explain it. They're night and day difference. Night and day difference after restoration even? or No, no, no. They're not restored. They're oh, both they're sitting there. They're both sitting there getting ready for restoration. They've been working on the Wildcat. I, They've got a lot of hours on the Wildcat, but you can see they've got all the components that – you know, that they have to rebuild and everything else. And you can see, you can see the stark difference between these two aircraft. Uh, and we're not talking a lot, of, a lot of difference in depth. Since these aircraft. We're not talking a lot of, a lot of difference in time on the bottom. Yeah. Since, since these aircraft are in fresh waters, is there anything you have to do with them after they come out to help the restoration process? Do you keep them? No, they, I, I'm, I'm not a restorer, but, um, they, they don't keep them in a tank or anything. They, um, they take them out and wash them off and soda blast them. Generally, you know, they, they, um, it's not, it's a lot different than people think. They, yeah, they dry them out really quick. That's what they do. They wash them down heavy and and then dry them out, and then they start restoration. So I, I recommend, you know, you guys are in Michigan, southwest Southwest Michigan, right? Yes. Um, I I recommend everybody go over to the Kalamazoo Air Zoo and take a good look at them. Because you can actually, the Kalamazoo Airs, you can see one finished restoration, and you can see a Wildcat and an SBD undergoing restoration. You get a good idea of this. Now, go they've got some it. good displays and a few, uh, some, some, depending on where you go, and if you go with EAA members, uh, you, a lot of times you get in there and actually watch them do the restoration. Well, you can go help on the restoration at the Kalamazoo Airs if you want. Yes. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Always looking for yeah, volunteers. If you want, yeah, if you want to sign up, I'll take you. <laughs> yeah, so they, uh, yeah, no, you you go right up and touch the aircraft. You can you can go right right and help. So actually, they have these. They have when they have events there. A lot of times, they bring parts of the aircraft out and they bring tools for people to uh, actually do some restoration. So it's kind of interesting. So kind of the Tom Sawyer model, you know. You get yeah, and they don't even have to be special. They just, just be anybody. <laughs> I'm sorry. Remember, you had to be special yeah. to uh, whitewash yeah. defense. Yeah, yeah. You don't have to even be special. I'll let you do it. So, uh, so, yeah. so what is so the uh, uh, any any is there 
uh, something in the in the Great Lakes they're searching for that you have? Well, well, I, I don't know if we have a dream find. My partner used to always joke. He used to always say UFOs are really a good thing to find, and uh, and I always forget which which is a meteor or a meteorite. Whether the meteor is in the sky and the meteorite's on the ground, or the meteorite's in the sky and the meteor's on the ground. Whatever he used to say, we've got we've got to find a couple UFOs and a couple big big uh, big meteors, and uh, that's what that's what he always joke about finding but you know we found the early Hallisane forest which is really kind of crazy that's a that's actually the true story of that is really kind of crazy you know, the uh you guys know about the early Hallisane forest yeah i've yeah, heard a little bit about good, it you've got a good article on that on your web page yeah yeah the for your listeners the early early Hallisane means well Hallisane means less than 10,000 years old so early Hallisane is like towards the 10,000 year mark so the, <laughs> Um, so what we found was the remnants of a forest from over 8,000 years old on the floor of Lake Michigan, which sounds pretty crazy, right? And, um, we, we thought at first, <clears throat> we thought at first there was some kind of pilings that, you know, somebody, you know, 100 years, 50 years ago put in there for something. We had seen fish traps. You ever see a fish trap up north end of the lake? They would, I don't know, they put these pilings in and kind of a netting around it. I don't know exactly how it worked. And we, we didn't know if that's what it was, but the, uh, the way we found it is very interesting. Um, U.S. Geologic Survey thought we actually saw it on the side scan sonar. Well, if you know anything about sonar systems, it's different densities, right, that give you the return of your signal, your sound signal. Well, tree stumps that have been on the bottom of a lake for over 8,000 years, their density is pretty pretty close to that of water. And so... We didn't see anything. What we saw was the aircraft. And so so we didn't say anything for a long time. We found the aircraft, and when the Navy told us to recover the aircraft, we're, we're down there working on the aircraft, and we all look and we see this thing. It looked like an anthill in front of one of the wings. So we started talking about it. I said, what is that? Right? And so... Some of the divers went went off the aircraft a little bit, which we always do, go off the aircraft to see if there's any loose parts, right? So they're going around picking up loose parts, and all the divers start saying, hey, there's more of those anthills. Now, anthills is a term I used, right? Yeah, they kind of look like an ant. Yeah, that was my term. I called them anthills, right? So the divers say, there's more of those things, right? So Keith, Keith Pearson, one of our divers, he decided to kick one. So he kicked it and broke apart, so he... He came up and he said, here, look at this. Is, I kicked it, and this is what it did. It broke apart. And he brought it, and we're looking at it. It's like, that's wood. So we knew this uh, coastal geologist. They call him a limologist, I think. His name was Frank Pransky. And so Keith gave him that piece of wood. So Frank Pransky said, where would you get this? And he said, got it on the bottom of the lake, right? Now, from that point on, anti-recovery is really good at keeping secrets. I don't know if you know about that. We, we have shipwrecks that are fully standing with the rigging all beautiful, right? That we found 1990, that we have never told anybody where they are, right? We found, a, we found an aircraft off of San Diego in 1988, and we never told anybody. A Navy JAG officer was talking to the news, and, and he told them that we found <laughs> this really important air. And they're like, wow, these guys can keep a secret. They didn't let it out. To, no, we didn't let it out. He did, right? Anyway, um, so anyway... <laughs> So, um, 
So anyway, so we just never said anything about the airplane. So um, Frank Pransky looked at him and said, well, you got this on the bottom of Lake Michigan? At how deep? And we said, 85 feet deep. So he sent it to five different radiocarbon labs. And they all came back 8,130 plus or minus five years or something. So he's like, oh, okay, this is, this is a significant find, right? So, so of course, we recovered the aircraft for the Navy, send the aircraft. And it's the aircraft that's on display at Midway Airport now. That's the aircraft. Mm-hmm. And um, so anyway, so that goes, goes. And so Frank says, he calls up. U.S. Geologic Survey, and everybody else says, you're not going to believe this. These divers have given me a piece of wood that they got off the bottom of Lake Michigan that's over 8,000 years old. So they bring everybody out, all these experts, right, all these Ph.D. geniuses, and and they bring their side scans, and they're scanning, they're trying to see the stones on the bottom, and they they see this side scan. They see this thing they started calling the angel, and what it was, it looked like a snow angel. On the bottom on the bottom and they said did you guys ever see that we said no that's pretty interesting <laughs> okay you know what the snow angel is right yeah yeah it's the eddy created but there's currents on the bottom of the lake that was the eddy you could actually see the eddy oh, still wow. where the airplane had been but all of these geniuses couldn't put two and two together and go these guys must there must have been an airplane here <laughs> they didn't put that together <laughs> for years they would say <laughs> Oh, while hunting shipwrecks, <laughs> no, we we they would say that while hunting shipwrecks, A and T recovery saw, saw these these stumps on the bottom. No, no, while hunting aircraft, we saw the aircraft. <laughs> we took the aircraft for the navy, and and then we reported the stumps. You know, so which which I guess. I guess there'd be some archaeologists and geologists that would be pissed off at us because we probably should have applied for the permits, letting them know that these stumps were. (laughs) (laughs) But if we had done that, yeah, if we had done that, the aircraft would still be there because they would all say it's all in its natural state. (laughs) The aircraft. So, so Keith always makes a joke. He always says, leave it to a pilot to crash in the trees. Anyway, so, so anyway. Way out, way out um, in Lake Michigan, you find the trees, yeah, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. so anyway. Um, so, yeah, so they, anyway, they, so they did all their studies on it. And what they, what they figured out was they had thought prior to that that the glaciers came, copped out Lake Michigan and melted and left Lake Michigan there, right? Well, that's not what happened. The glaciers came, carved out Lake Michigan, but receded and and um, left a little lake. They called it Lake Chippewa. And they had known about Lake Chippewa, but they didn't know the time. They had no idea of the timing. They thought Lake Chippewa had been 12,000 years ago, right? And then they thought the glacier came and made the bigger lake and, and left left the bigger lake. But that's not what happened. It's, um, apparently, it's not what happened. It, 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 the water melted but went away, too. It didn't, it didn't stay. So... Um, and then I guess water from Lake Superior drained into Lake Michigan and then 8,000, I guess it'd be about 8,150 years ago now, Lake Michigan got created. So by water flow from apparently Lake Superior. So anyway, so they, they said it was one of the most significant geologic finds of the, I think they had said the last 50 years or something, you know, so it was a very important geologic find. Can you say that, that was 85 85 feet of water, I think. 
you know. That's a lot of so, uh, not real deep. Okay. Yeah, to us it was gave us a lot of laughs. <laughs>, <laughs> well, and you know, I want to want to uh, mention here uh, to anyone who has uh, downloaded this podcast and is listening, um, a lot of this information we're going over can be found at AT Recovery's website. Uh, Eric Roloff has been posting links in the chat room to uh, different pages on their website. But uh, if you want to get more information about the Holocene Forest, that is on, uh, just follow the links at atrecovery.com. There's information about German U-Boat at atrecovery.com. Again, just follow the links. So if you'd like to have a little more information on what, we, what we're talking about here, it is available at their website. Additionally, uh, anyone who's good with Google or doing any kind of keyword search, um, you can find this information and so much more about what AT Recovery has done uh, in, you know, in the Great Lakes Bay, well, Southern Lake Michigan here, uh, searching for planes, finding planes, raising planes. Um, these guys have really been into this, what, since it's 80, 1986 there, Taris? Yeah, well, actually, we, we found my, I was 10 years old when we found, my, we found our first aircraft, which was 1977. But um, Al and I are former okay. army off, army officers, so so we you know we went off, went to college, went went into the army as officers, and um, and then we came back, you know. So okay. uh, so you know, I, well, I want to say we got we got you know really heavy into it in about 1986. So 86. Okay. So, well, yeah. hey, Terrace, this has been great. Uh, this has been a, a lot more information than, than we were even hoping to get from you here. Uh, touched on a lot of different topics. Um, we do have to kind of move on. We do have some other things that we have to cover in the podcast here, but this has been a, been a great segment here. Um, so we've kept our uh, chat room entertained. Um, like I said, I'm sure we'll get quite a few downloads off of this as well. Um, but, you know, this has been great. Thank you very much for being on our show, though. This is- oh, you're welcome. Thanks. Okay. Okay. We'll do. All right. Have okay. a great night. Thanks. Right. Thanks so much, Terry. Right. Appreciate it, man. I'd also like to thank everybody who's in the chat room. We had Eric, usually we had a couple new faces. And that's it for this week. Uh, we had a little bit of problem with recording after we ended the interview, so unfortunately we missed the bad scuba joke. We didn't have anything else besides that. So you didn't really miss much. We'll catch up with everybody next week. So until next time, go out there and get wet. <laughs>